Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. And welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week we're very pleased to have Andrew Gentis on the show, and we'll be talking about his new book, Exile to Siberia, 1590-1822. Siberia has a kind of bad rap insofar as uh, being exiled and being sent to Siberia are synonyms, even in English, which is kind of a remarkable thing if you think about it. I had some impression as to how Siberia got this rap, but didn't know the full details. Andrew fills us in. I enjoyed talking to him, and I hope that you enjoy the interview. Here it is. Hi, Andrew. Good morning, Marshall. And how are you today? I'm doing very well. How about yourself? Uh, I'm very well. Um, it's very kind of you uh, not to say that this is the second time we started this because I screwed up the first time. So <laughs> we, we, we will not burden the listeners with that. Uh, let me just say to them that we're very happy to have Andrew Gentis on the show today, and we'll be talking about his terrific new book, Exile to Siberia, 1590 to 1822. I should tell people that this is a topic that's um, very close to my own heart, not because I was exiled to Siberia or anything like that, but because uh, much of Andrew's work falls um, directly into the period that uh, I once studied, that is the Muscovite period. So I was particularly enthused to read this book, and I encourage everybody to read it as well. So Andrew, maybe we could begin by you telling me and our listeners a little bit about yourself, that is, where you grew up, where you went to school, and how you became interested in Russian history. Yeah, sure, sure. And thanks thanks a lot for that introduction, by the way, Marshall. Um, well, I was born in New Hampshire, and uh, when I was a kid, my dad was in the military, and so we moved around a fair amount. But for the most part, I was, uh, I was born and raised and uh, received my education in New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. Uh, went to uh, Little Keene State College down there in southwestern New Hampshire, mm-hmm. and at that time for what I confess was a kind of a small town uh, kid that was really probably a good place for me to go to school Mm -hmm. wasn't too old and so on Mm -hmm. and um, by virtue of going there I was able to be a little bit of a a big fish in a small pond I suppose and Mm -hmm. there was a low teacher to student ratio and that Mm -hmm. type of thing Mm -hmm. and so I uh, was was very fortunate in having a couple of professors that took interest in in my work and in, in me and so on and you know, it was there that I really found that I had, uh, I think, a kind of a knack for uh, the, the study of history and, mm-hmm. and, and writing history and that type of thing. So mm-hmm. I was very encouraged, and um, after uh, getting my bachelor's degree there, I decided to apply to graduate school. Mm-hmm. And I didn't really exactly know where I wanted to go, but mm-hmm. at that time I was really smitten with the idea of going to California, so mm-hmm. I had applied to a universities out there Mm -hmm. and uh, after deferring my acceptance for a year I went out to the University of California at Riverside Mm -hmm. 
And um, once I was there, uh, I was I was at that point. I was still kind of um, trying to decide if I wanted to focus in German history or um, or Russian history. I'd mm -hmm. become interested in Russian history while I was an undergrad, mm -hmm. and had started reading Russian literature and studying Russian and so on. Mm -hmm. So as I said, I got out to the University of California at Riverside, and um, the uh, the Soviet historian out there was at the time uh, J. R. Shkedi. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, and and so I ended up um, working uh, under him um, for the the just over two years that I was there, mm -hmm. and uh, it was very interesting because of course Arch's book um, on the purges had. Uh, come out not too too long before that mm -hmm. and he was getting a lot of attention there was a lot of controversy and so mm -hmm. on and so forth mm -hmm. and so i was i didn't really plan it that way and i didn't really realize it so much at the time but i realized i was there at the sort of cutting edge of mm -hmm. revisionism and so on mm -hmm. and so forth mm -hmm. and what years were so these? I stayed, uh let's see i guess i was out there from eight, 1980 89 to 1991 mm -hmm. yeah i see okay and there were some funding problems and there were some other problems and so on as a sort of a typical story. So <laughs> I, even though I'd intended to go for a PhD, I stayed long enough to get a master's degree uh -huh. and a, with a couple of other courses. Um, but uh, then I left um, and took some time off and worked in the private sector, went back east and worked for a, uh, uh, I guess it was a, uh, in, a software hardware company. Uh -huh. In Cambridge, Mass, and so on, uh -huh. contemplated going to law school and, and trying to, you know, sort of flesh out my life. Every, every, like every everybody does. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, you know, you know, where am I going? Yeah. Um, but a, a few couple year year or two in in the private sector convinced me that I wanted to go back to uh -huh. uh, to school to get my PhD. Uh -huh. And so I had applied earlier to Brown University based upon. Um, uh, my uh, reading of uh, Abbott Gleason's book, mm -hmm. Young Russia, mm -hmm. and I hadn't gotten accepted the first time, but I applied again. I went down and had a second interview with, with Abbott or Tom, as he prefers to mm -hmm. be known. And uh, to my great good fortune, I got accepted into the program. That's there. great, yeah. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so I was very happy. And then I went down, and I spent uh, a good long time working on my PhD there. And one of the things that was really interesting is, is you know, Tom was from the somewhat of the older coterie of, of historians, uh, Russian historians, in contrast to, to Arch. And I wouldn't say that, that Tom was part of the kind of the establishment necessarily, mm -hmm. but he had a slightly more traditional approach to history and that type of thing. Mm -hmm. and, and it really, in a sense, gave me by having studied under these two rather different um, mentors, um, a very well-rounded approach, to be quite honest with you, mm -hmm. to the study, which I think has really benefited me in the long run because it's kept me from perhaps approaching things uh, in, in too one-sided a way mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, that I might have otherwise. Mm -hmm. So, um, like I said, I stayed there. I got my Ph.D. in uh, 2002, mm -hmm. and... Uh, uh, spent a couple of years kicking around uh, the states trying to find a position. Everybody does. And, yeah, yeah. And at that time, you know, hitting the job market, it was um, kind of a, a sad revelation to find that 
even with a Ph.D. from Brown, it was going to be enormously hard to find a yeah. permanent position. Yeah. Anywhere. Mm-hmm. So um, I was applying to, uh, I mean, just almost anything that came along. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was in, the, in central Pennsylvania when the position came up for the University of Queensland, mm-hmm. uh, for which I seemed tailor-made and so on. And mm-hmm. I'd never even imagined even, you know, visiting Australia. (laughs) (laughs) But I hadn't applied, and one thing led to another, and and before I knew it, you know, I was on a plane down here for an interview, Uh and and then uh, I I was offered the position, Uh I had to work out some details and so on. Uh But suffice it to say that I arrived here for what was the beginning of the second semester of 2003, Uh Um, so which which here, of course, everything's obverse because we're south of the equator. Yeah, so. right. Yeah, yeah. So, how so have you? Yeah, so I was going to say, how have you enjoyed it so far? Well, it's been pretty good. I mean, um, Australia's got a lot of things going for it. Um, there are a lot of uh, things that make it, I think, in many ways, a um, a more equitable society. Mm-hmm. I think there are some things that. Uh, give it a significant advantage in terms of livability mm-hmm. uh, compared to the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, the university itself uh, it has a lot of potential, mm-hmm. um, and we're in the process sort of of a kind of generational um, turnover, mm-hmm. you might say, uh, in history. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's uh, also a move by the uh, the the uh, Council running the university and so on, and and the new vice chancellor, as he's called, who's mm-hmm. the equivalent of the president of a university in the states, mm-hmm. to uh, enhance the research profile of mm-hmm. the arts and so on. And so that's very encouraging. Mm-hmm. And I've gotten support for for uh, my research endeavors, uh, and my teaching load is is quite reasonable and mm-hmm. so on. Mm-hmm. So there, there's 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 a lot of potential here, and I, I think it's it's only going to get better. Yeah, I have had several friends um, who have taught in Australia, and they've all had uh, a really good time, and most of them are still there, to be honest with you. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I taught in Ireland for a year and quite enjoyed that, and I also found that um, that it was a it was a particularly good place uh, to do to do research, and my teaching load was quite light, and it was it was it was all in all pretty enjoyable, I would say, and and I think it it kind of enriched me as. A historian, having had the opportunity to to teach abroad, it gave me a, a renewed understanding of what American academia really is. So um, you'll have to oh, come back. No about it. Yeah. yeah, you'll have to come back from Australia after a while and tell us about ourselves. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, I mean that's a very interesting thing. Of course, it's like after I had spent you know nine months in in Russia when I was researching my dissertation, you. You come back to your country looking at it in an entirely yeah. different way. That's totally, and, uh, totally true. And 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 to, and to be quite honest with you, you know, even though I haven't been banished to the, you know, to the outer reaches of Siberia <laughs> or something, I'm still, in a sense, an exile. Yeah, no, it's true. And and that has given me some small degree, I think, of of sympathy with my historical mm-hmm. subject. Mm-hmm. So no, I think I think, I'd that... like to think that I'm a little bit closer to that. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's that's an interesting point, and I think it's it's quite it's quite right. Yes, so uh, that's a good segue into talking about the book itself. How did you come to write it? How did you choose this topic? Well, I was when I was still at uh, at UCR, um, they uh, they hired uh, Stephen Frank, 
mm-hmm. to be the Imperial Russian historian, and mm-hmm. he's since gone along with Arch Getty to uh, UCLA. Mm-hmm. And of course, Stevens' work concerns, um, or at least it did at the time. I'm not exactly sure what he's working on now, but it concerned peasant justice uh, in the second half of the 19th century, mm-hmm. um, peasant justice then, and and so. He was. He had acquired uh, some sort of information on the uh, Siberian exile system, but he noted that there really was this enormous lack of scholarship on the Siberian exile system. Mm-hmm. And he suggested to me when I was taking a seminar with him that this might be a good mm-hmm. topic to, to research and so on. Mm-hmm. And um, so I read uh, George Kennan's uh, Siberia and the Exile System. Sure, yeah. Of course, it's published in 1891. Yeah. And... You know, to my surprise, I mean, that, along with just a couple of articles by Alan Wood, were really almost the only things that you could find in English mm-hmm. on the Siberian exile system. Mm-hmm. And so I immediately recognized that, you know, here was a, an area that both interested me because mm-hmm. of, um, uh, well, I, I, I guess I'd always had an interest in, in Stalinism and the Gulag, you mm-hmm. know, I have to confess sort of darker things about Russian history fascinate me. Mm-hmm. Um, but here was something that was both, you might say, a little bit uh, sensational, but also at the same time clearly needed to be given attention. Mm-hmm. And so then, you know, of course, when I left uh, UCR and, uh, and was on my hiatus, I didn't really do much, so I was always reading uh, about Russian history and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I went to Brown and it came time to pick a topic for my uh, dissertation, I threw around a couple of ideas with uh, Tom Gleason. But uh, the, when I mentioned this one on, on the Siberian exile system, um, he said, well, that, that looks like something that's, that's, that's quite interesting. Mm-hmm. And at that, originally at the time, the only thing that I was planning to do was actually just write about the, um, the Sakhalin penal colony. Right which uh, was um, erected um, well, pretty much in the 1860s, 1870s, mm-hmm. and lasted until the Japanese invasion in 1906, mm-hmm. and about which I've written a couple of articles. Mm-hmm. But he noted as well that you know, you've got really this whole big topic of pre-Soviet exile that no one has written about. And he said, why don't you write a dissertation about the entire thing? Mm-hmm. And had I known then what I knew know now, I might have, you know, <laughs> might have yeah. insisted that no, I'll just do Sockling to start off with, yeah, right. because it became an enormous, gigantic project. I yeah. mean, I ended up writing a dissertation that was 600 pages long and yeah. 10-point type, so yeah. wow. it it almost buried me. Yeah. But you know, even though it was it was a, it was a, a close call to kind of get out of that thing alive, I'm really glad that I did it because it's provided a kind of basis upon which I'm extrapolating a lot of, uh, along with some some additional you know, research, considerable additional research. I'm, I'm extrapolating out of that a lot of the material, and of course the the book that has just come out is based on the first chapters of that dissertation. Uh-huh. I intend to write these two more books. Oh, is that right? Will, our history. I didn't know that. That's good. Well, uh, when those come out, you'll have to be on the show. <laughs> you have to promise. Well, I hope I will. Yeah. It's I actually funny because we, we had uh, Alex uh, Rabinowitz on the show, and he, uh, as you probably know, wrote uh, three books, basically three books, on 
the Russian Revolution. Yeah, I was just listening to some of his interviews. Yeah, and and you know, it's, it's so so uh, uh, yeah. So we we have a tradition of that kind of thing. Um, you know. Yeah, well, series. I've always been you know I, I don't know maybe ever since I read J.R.R. Tolkien's uh, Lord of the Rings. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, multi. I always thought that, it, that there's something magical about writing a yeah. trilogy. It's true. No, you know, Germans say all good things come in threes. So oh, yeah, it's quite true. <laughs> so the um, so the the. The genesis of the book then is, is your interest at at, uh, at Riverside in the topic and and um, your talks with Arch and, and Tom Gleason, and then you write the dissertation and Stephen Frank and Stephen Frank as well. Yes, that's right. And so then why don't we go directly to the book itself and uh, explain? Yeah, actually, it's funny because I have kind of an anecdote about this. I remember I was in Russia once and I asked a friend of mine who knows everything about Russian history what the difference between Silka, which means exile, and Katorga was and he looked at me and said i have no idea <laughs> yeah. what i don't know and I, I thought this was just yeah. something everybody would know so why don't you um the uh, why, don't, why don't you actually begin by talking a little bit about how uh, siberia came to be a place in the muscovite period i guess it was where people were sent yeah well you know of course um you've got the traditional story of of yermak the mm-hmm. conqueror of siberia moving into um, moving across the Urals in mm-hmm. 1582 and defeating the Sibir Khanate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this begins this very rapid march across the uh, the entire subcontinent by the Russians and the Cossacks and so on. And um, one of the things that I point out is that um, it's not generally realized that in the space of a little more than 100 years, the Russians acquired a territory that was equal to um, North and South America combined. Yeah, that's an astounding um, fact. That's tr- yeah, it's truly an astounding, astounding fact. Man. I mean, they were all the way at the Kamchatka Peninsula by 1700. Uh-huh. So they have this enormous territory that they acquire um, in almost one fell swoop and so on. And what I found was that from the very beginning, they um, are faced with this kind of problem um, with getting people out there, because at the very time that the Muscovite state is expanding imperialistically, it's also internally developing serfdom apace, mm-hmm. it's surfing the peasants and so on. And so the 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 the, the potentially the potential uh, pool of migrants are being tied down to the to the land, mm-hmm. and they're not being made available to serve as servitors or. Uh, or settlers, or, or agriculturalists, mm-hmm. or whatnot, for this this new expanded uh, territory. So, what the state begins to do is to um, produce, in the way that I describe it, um, in a sort of Foucauldian sense, it begins to produce criminals. Mm-hmm. It begins to enact a great deal of legislation, particularly. Uh, with the um, promulgation of the 1649 law code, the mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um which really creates, in uh, Yevgeny Anisimov's phrase, the, the the foundings for a totalitarian state. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I I think that's you know a little bit of a, an exaggeration. I'm not really a big uh, a big fan of the term totalitarianism, but you do definitely see after 1649 a greatly expanding um, bureaucracy. And an expanding uh, body of legislation that makes um, makes all kinds of different violations punishable by exile. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting as well at this time is that 
basically with the 1649 Olegenie, the uh, the death penalty is de facto um, replaced mm-hmm. by exile during this period. Mm-hmm. So even though people are still being exiled or being executed for quite some time, for the most part, even murderers, people who, who do these very horrible things, are uh, perhaps mutilated and they're flogged and so on. They might have their nostrils ripped out. They might be tattooed on their face. Mm-hmm. But nonetheless, they are, they are put into chains and they are marched, you know, 2,000, 3,000 kilometers into the heart of Siberia where they're going to be made to serve the Tsar as a settler or in many cases as a, as a Cossack or as a, mm-hmm. as a state servitor or something like this. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things that I'm pointing out uh, in the book is that we're not really dealing with um, the development of exile as a, as a penal mechanism so mm-hmm. much. Rather, it's a mechanism for statecraft. It's a mechanism mm-hmm. of economic manipulation mm-hmm. and what I call the commodification of the, of the, the criminal body and mm-hmm. so on mm-hmm. for the purpose of satisfying the state's various uh, status goals, economic goals, and so on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think one thing that and, we need to kind of – I'm sorry to interrupt, but I think one thing we kind of need to be yeah. clear about here in, in order to s- s- sort of make this situation understandable to – many of our American listeners, but maybe even some listeners in Australia, is that uh, you know people will naturally draw a parallel between the American expansion across the continent and the Russian expansion across Siberia. But in fact, they were very dif- different in many ways. So maybe you could speak to that a little bit. Yeah, I, 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 Eva Maria Stolberg has, has um, in her work, applied uh, um, Frederick Jackson Turner's thesis to Siberia and argues that this is a, is a useful way for understanding um, um, Russian expansion in the area. And I, I have to say I, I rather disagree with her. I, uh-huh. I, I think that there were a number of, of differences, and, and one of them is the fact that you really, for the most part, don't have a class of kind of yeoman uh-huh. farmers that go yeah, out into right. Siberia. Mm-hmm. Um, from the very beginning, um, the state... Is there with its uh, with its officials and the Muscovite apparatus, as you know, was was quite efficient in mm-hmm. many ways, mm-hmm. um, and they were very efficient, remarkably, in getting people out to Siberia very quickly and controlling and dictating um, settlement mm-hmm. where you could go and where you couldn't go mm-hmm. and so on. And even as it's been pointed out you know, by recent historians. Um, they were concerned with protecting the indigenous people against incursions. So mm-hmm. that further limited um, where people could settle. Mm-hmm. And then the other big thing, of course, is, is that in contradistinction to the American experience, you just, you know, you don't have anything parallel to the exile system. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got a few Native Americans that are sent out, of course, on the, on the Trail of Tears mm-hmm. and so on. But you know, the, their numbers are, however terrible that was, their numbers are only in the, in the few thousands. Mm-hmm. Whereas during the period that I look at between uh, the late 1580s and, um, and uh, 1822, I mean, it's hard to, to, to figure numbers because data is very hit or miss. Mm-hmm. But I would say that, that certainly, certainly at least 500,000 people mm-hmm were exiled to Siberia against their will. Mm-hmm. So that's something that, again, you know, you just don't have in the American experience. Mm-hmm. So the, the frontier thesis, I don't think, really applies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I see what you mean. I think another thing to point out, and you pointed out in your book, and I was kind of surprised, to be uh, honest with you, is that 
this massive territory, as you say, equal to both uh, North and South America, was incredibly sparsely populated. There really were yeah. very yeah, few I mean, there people were very there. Very few indigenes out there to begin with. Uh-huh. Um, and um, and then you know even once you begin to settle it, um, you know it's, it's still fairly sparsely populated by the early nineteenth uh, century. Uh-huh. So all the more reason this is why the, the the autocracy wants to try to get as many usable bodies out there yeah, right. as it possibly can. Right. Because the big thing is, and I should have mentioned this from the very beginning, the major draw yeah, I was gonna ask. Um, for Russians into Siberia is the fur trade. Mm-hmm. Um, it's furs that that make the Muscovite state the powerhouse that it became. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's furs that allow for um, Ivan the Terrible and these other rulers of Moscow to pay for their armies and, mm-hmm. and engage in their wars and so on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And this fur, um, you know, Siberia itself is is is, is a bounty of furs. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are sable, there are fox, there are mm-hmm. uh, mar- marmots and all mar- martins, I guess they're called, and all kinds of different mm-hmm. things. Mm-hmm. So with the collapse of the Sibir Khanate, um, the uh, the Russians take over what had been the Sibir Khanate's um, collection of furs from its various vassals mm-hmm. amongst these small peoples, as they're known, the, the indigenous peoples mm-hmm. of Siberia. Mm-hmm. And this um, it becomes really the main reason initially for Muscovy to go into Siberia. And they need to send people there to, to, uh, to extract the furs from the Siberian people through all the different ways that you know this was done by taking hostages and mm-hmm. raping and pillaging and that yeah. type of thing. Right. So then, and um yeah. I was gonna say then the standard pattern is for the government to identify a place where they want to put a a fortress of some sort, an astrog yeah. as I think it's called. And then they would send servitors Fort out there. Yeah. And they would send servitors out there to uh build what was basically a stockade. And then they would send yeah. um exiles out there to uh do most of the menial, I guess what we might call the menial labor, uh, which would include yeah. which would include um, cropping and uh, you know uh, construction and uh, road repair and that kind of thing. Well, this, up until up until Peter's reign, up until 1689, um, exiles performed essentially two main functions. And what was interesting is that, that I found is that most exiles prior to 1649. Uh, were and and their numbers were fairly small, but most of these people were prisoners of war mm-hmm. that had been captured in Muscovy's wars, uh, mm-hmm. <clears throat> excuse me, in the Baltics and with Poland, Lithuania, and so mm-hmm. on. And they were sent out as as um, uh, kind of drafted into the Cossacks and other um, servitors groups in in uh, Siberia. Mm-hmm. And so they were sent out to strong arm the indigenes into handing over their weapons caches mm-hmm. and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, not that, but their fur caches and so mm-hmm. on. Yeah. And then the other thing that you needed, though, is because these people need to be fed and the supply lines are so long back to Moscow or anywhere else in, in European Russia, you need to have an indigenous agricultural base. Right. Now, initially, they try to get the indigenes do this, but these people are nomads, and they don't want to sit around farming and right. giving their food. <laughs> yeah. so, so what you do then is you begin to exile increasing numbers of not only Russians, but Ukrainians and other peoples who are being captured 
as Russia begins to expand. You send them out, and they are assigned to these locales uh, to produce food that is then going to be used to feed the non-food producing mm -hmm. um, Russians that are in the region. Mm -hmm. So th that, that situation prevails um, until you get to Peter's reign. Then what happens is it's, it's really interesting because it's, it's indicative of, if you will, the, the efficiency of the Muscovite system that already by the end of the 17th century, um, a lot of the fur-bearing animals or, or mammals, if you will, of, uh, of Siberia are mm -hmm. becoming extinct. Really? They are yeah, they are. I mean, there there is such an enormously efficient extraction of furs during this period that the Russians have managed to uh, bring several species to this state of extinction by the mm. end of the 1700s mm. or the end of the uh, 1600s. So, what occurs at this time, as well as something that's very interesting, and this is the discovery of uh, uh, valuable uh, minerals and so on, metals mm -hmm. and so on, mm -hmm. in the Baikalia, Transbaikalia, yeah. um, east of the uh, Lake Baikal. And so now begun, begins a different phase in Siberia's history, and this is the extraction uh, not only of furs, but of mineral resources and metallurgy. Uh -huh. And this also begins the process, the introduction of katorga, which mm -hmm. is penal uh, labor. Um, and I insist on using the Russian term in the book because katorga was itself a kind of penological administrative construct mm -hmm. that not only just was hard labor in the way that we would think of it in the West, but was really an entire administrative apparatus. Mm -hmm. It gets created by Peter um, for the purposes of in improving Russia's war-making capacity. Mm -hmm. So during this period, um, iron works are established in the Urals. Uh, silver uh, mines begin to be established in, um, in Nerchinsk, uh, east of Baikal, um, and lead is being mined as well. And all these things, of course, are necessary for you to be able to fight your wars against, uh, against Sweden and mm -hmm and the other powers in, in Europe. So this creates a very much more um, utilitarian use, I guess you'd say, of criminals during mm -hmm. this period. And there is this remarkable document that I found um, that had been um, in a collection that was published early in the uh, 20th century, uh, a document written um, in Peter's own hand saying, we need 2,000 convicts quick. Go find them <laughs> from, the, from the various town councils yeah. and the various districts. In other words, deliver me 2,000 convicts. Yeah. So, again, there is nothing more indicative of producing yeah. Yeah. Um, 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 penal laborers than right. this uh, very revealing document. Right. And this creates a, a, a body of manipulable labor, labor that for the most part is actually used at building sites, as far as I can tell, at building sites in, in uh, European Russia, uh -huh. until we get Catherine II's reign, which begins in 1762. And it's during that period that after the big building projects have essentially been accomplished in um, European Russia, the main body of penal laborers is moved solidly out to Nurchansk, which mm -hmm. by now has become quite an interesting complex and series of different um, plants and factories and so on for the extraction of uh, various metals and uh, their smelting and so on, and then their production into various goods that are then, as I said, shipped back 
to European Russia for for use in war making. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, then you're you're also getting into a period where there um, is a, a a need to colonize Siberia because of what is believed to be the the looming threat from China mm -hmm. and to borders. Because China, of course, is much more populous. It's just over the border. Mm -hmm. um, and it has a reasonable claim to moving into this kind yeah. of empty space to the north. The Russians are faced with having this big empty space and not enough bodies to fill it. Right. So they want to secure this area, uh, and moreover, to protect the uh, the important metals that they're now extracting from that. Mm -hmm. So there becomes a con concerted use to get bodies out there in any way you can. And this initiates another very interesting development in the history of exile, which is the development of administrative exile. Mm -hmm. um, in basically beginning in 1760, a couple of years before uh, Catherine takes the throne, and then to which she adds afterwards with subsequent leg legislation, administrative exile is something that the uh, sovereigns give um, the power over to landowners and also peasant communes. Mm -hmm. that allows them to deport to Russia uh, serfs mm -hmm. or fellow peasants without having to legally accuse them of a crime or to get them convicted in a court. Mm -hmm. So all you've got to do is essentially say that Ivan Ivanov is um, a, 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 a bad guy. And that's the phrase in Russian was Dunaya Povidenie, yeah. uh, bad behavior, yeah. which... No, <laughs> kind of covers, yeah, right. covers anything you yeah. want. So you label somebody as being of uh, bad behavior, and you turn them over to the to the uh, government, and they'll march that poor bastard out into the <laughs> middle of, of Syria and, and make use of him. Right. Now, what happens is this um, the, is encouraged by the government to the tune of actually paying landowners to hand on over serfs. Oh, so really? The landowners yeah. are getting... Yeah, you know, I, I forget the exact um, figures, but I think they got something like 10 rubles for each male serf, uh -huh. uh, 5 rubles for a boy, and, and half those for females mm -hmm. and so on. There is this, as I put it in the book, this sort right. of Gogolian speculation in living souls, mm -hmm. um, which, you know, is a further commodification of these bodies. It is, it, it, it completely undermines any sort of penological basis or, or, or judicial basis for sending these poor people out there. Um, but it is a process that grows apace so that by the time you get to the 19th century, fully half of the million or so people that were exiled in the space of, of the final century of the Romanov dynasty are um, sent there without ever having been accused of or convicted of a crime. Mm -hmm. It's just this enormous, you know, Violation yeah. of, of, of human uh, human dignity. So, human dignity. so, was there any chance that these people could come back? I mean, was their term limited in any way? Well, yeah, you did have um, in the case of administrative exile as it as it develops in the 19th century, let's say, and this is a little outside of the period yeah. of the book, but uh -huh. in the space of the 19th century, administrative exile is supposed to be only for five years. Uh -huh. But what happens is once these people are, are sent out there, the only way that they can come back at the expiry of their, of their term is if they pay for it themselves. Mm -hmm. 
and the government's not going to, in other words, bring them back on its own on its own coin. Mm -hmm. So by the time these people get out there and they have uh, either settled or not, or in oftentimes they just become beggars and so on, they they just don't have the means. Mm -hmm. So they're stuck, you know. Right. And and the government knows this, you know. So uh, the other thing too is you do have people that. Um, begin to get exiled more specifically to Silka, which is a judicial sentence of mm -hmm. exile. Mm -hmm. And these people are assigned as um, posiliensi, as settlers. Mm -hmm. yeah. So exiled settlers. And that's a specific judicial category uh, to which people do um, get, get convicted to. And they do get assigned to settlements. The terms uh, would vary, but if those people were convicted, part of their sentence held that even after they had served their criminal sentence, they could never return to European Russia. Mm -hmm. So the and, and similarly too with the sentence of katorgos, heavy mm -hmm. labor, uh, penal labor. So the the intent behind these two things, the, these two judicial sentences, was clearly that after these people had had uh, paid their debt to society, so to speak, they would still have to serve as settlers within Siberia. Mm -hmm. I see. What I know this is a ridiculously broad question, but we have this image in our mind of Siberia being this tremendously harsh and horrible place. What were conditions like for many of these people? Well, they were harsh and horrible for many. <laughs> oh, yes. so it is yeah, I mean, it's, it's, there's no two ways about it. But, but I mean, the other thing too is you, you do have to remember that 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 for the most part settlement even to this day in Siberia is long and is along the narrow southern band of the region. Yeah. So even though, you know, a good portion of Siberia for example is is uh, tundra, there are very very few people that live up in those harsh conditions. Mm -hmm. Um then you have this narrow band which is this huge coniferous forest known as the taiga. Mm -hmm. But even Still, most people live at a latitude that is the equal of or even below that of Moscow or yeah. Petersburg or something. Uh -huh. Nonetheless, I mean, it is bloody cold out there. I mean, when mm -hmm. I was, uh, I arrived in Irkutsk um, uh, on the Trans-Siberian Railroad. I'd been in Vladivostok researching there for several months, and then I took the train to Irkutsk. And I arrived in Irkutsk something like the first or second day of January. Mm -hmm. And... It was a cold spell there, and it was minus 30 degrees um, to 35 degrees Fahrenheit yeah. uh, Celsius, because of that temperature, Fahrenheit and Celsius, Celsius actually converge. Uh -huh. And, you know, that, that's pretty cold. That's cold, yeah, feel, no, yeah. Yeah, you, when you're outside in that temperature, you can feel your eyeballs begin to congeal. Yeah, I imagine, and yeah. And to blink a lot. Yeah. Um, it freezes the minute it hits the sidewalk. The yeah. air freezes. There's this kind of weird phenomenon where the moisture in the air will freeze, and so you're walking in this kind of cloud-like thing. And stuff. Uh -huh. yeah. So you actually feel your body, for every second that you're outside, you feel your body slowly kind of dying, mm -hmm. and, you mm -hmm. knew, and you know that you've got to get in at a certain point, because otherwise you're not going to last, no matter how warmly you're dressed. Yeah, exactly. So... You know, uh, the people that were sent out there were uh, were not given down jackets or anything, so they were subjected to the worst uh, of these uh, of these uh, climatic uh, uh, you know variables that you can imagine. And then, of course, you know these people got to march out there and change. Right. 
And so, again, we don't have exact figures for the period that I uh, cover in, in this book. I've got some figures for the late 19th century. But I think it's, it's fair to, to, to estimate that at least, at least, you know, a quarter of the people who were sent to Siberia prior to 1822 died before ever reaching their their destination. Uh -huh. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, so, did, did the government attempt to actually? Say, I mean, you know, there's lots of. This is a little bit outside the uh, the, the chronological framework of the book, but uh, did the government send women out there as well in the hopes that they might um, be fruitful and multiply? Oh, very much so. Yeah, very much so. And, and what you and, and in fact, this falls squarely within the period covered by the book. Okay. You have um, in the documentation, it's quite explicitly stated that they're going to round up women in uh, in European Russia uh, and uh, and ship them out on mm -hmm. mass to uh, to Siberia and explicitly to serve as wives for Cossacks and officers mm -hmm. and so on. Mm -hmm. Um, and and this is this is was done uh, right up to into the early uh, into the early 19th century, and then too you also had a situation um, where the government was so desperate to um, give these men wives because females were seen as a civilizing component. Mm -hmm. here. Um, so there was the there was the trope that that man was a wild beast he would engage yeah. in. In, uh, in in dubious sexual practices and, and even worse, and that you had to get these women out there so that this um, this frontier you know wild society could be tamed. Mm -hmm. And so the the government bent all efforts towards towards doing something to resolve this, and it offered um, you know early you know up early into the 19th century inducements for um, local um, tribes people and um, the small number of indigenous Russian peasants that were there to sell their daughters or uh, sisters or so on mm -hmm. uh, to exiles mm -hmm. uh, as, as, um, as their wives. Mm -hmm. So there was, again, this, this commodification, this speculation in human individuals uh, that was going on um, for females as well. Mm -hmm. at, at, at most, though, of course, the women were always a small minority of the total exilic population mm -hmm. just because can have that many women um, being listed as criminals, mm -hmm. um, but but they were they were paired with um, with male uh, convicts quite consciously and intentionally. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Was there uh, was there I, I, again? I, I probably I suspect that the um, data are so few that you won't be able to answer this question. But was there any natural increase among the Russian population that was that is the exilic population that was sent out there, or was it all the result? Of more people being sent. Well, that's a good question. There's there's a debate about this, and not surprisingly, um, uh, historians during the Soviet era, and I suspect Russian historians today are are loath to admit that um, they are the descendants of exiles, mm -hmm. and that that exile, you know, theirs is a land of exiles, and so on. And in fact, it wasn't. Even though we had a lot of exiles being sent to Siberia, at no time—and this is important to stress—at no time did exiles constitute a majority of the population mm -hmm. overall. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I would say they never constituted more than perhaps 10 to 15 percent of the total population of mm -hmm. Siberia. Mm -hmm. 
Now, one of the things, I mean, I tend to think that they actually uh, left few descendants. And uh-huh. the reason that I think this is, first of all, that most of them were males. Uh-huh. A lot of them were people who were mentally or physically handicapped. Uh-huh. And um, a lot of them escaped. Uh-huh. And, uh, and, and you just, you know, and, and moreover, it, the, the, the percentage of them who were indeed actually criminals, mm-hmm. that is to say people who weren't wrongly accused but really had done the things that they did, were in all likelihood not the type of people who would settle down and raise families. Mm-hmm. So I don't think, in other words, that they contributed materially um, to the to the Russian population. Mm-hmm. What they did do, and this is a point that I make in the book, is that when they escaped, when they fled their assigned locations, which they did quite frequently and quite easily, they helped to spread the various diseases and so on mm-hmm. throughout the native population mm-hmm. that served to depopulate mm-hmm. the uh, the indigenous population of Siberia. Mm-hmm. And in that way, it led to the preponderance uh, much faster of the Russian population. Mm-hmm. So theirs was not so much of an addition to the Russian population, but they functioned more as a, as a force that detracted from the uh, from the indigenous population through spreading uh, diseases and, and, and that type of thing. Mm-hmm. How did the government keep these people in exile? Uh, I, I, that's really an honest question. I, I don't know. How did they prevent them from escaping and make sure that they did the work that they were assigned to do? Yeah, well, the, the, the glib answer is, in, in fact, oftentimes they didn't. Yeah. I mean, there, there were enormously high escape rates. Uh-huh. And one of the only ways that they could do it was by sending them to such a remote location that there was really kind of nowhere for them to go. Uh-huh. In other words, they escaped out of the settlement. They would simply die uh, of exposure in the tigers. Uh-huh. Yeah. So that was one way. Um, there were, of course, um, you know, Cossacks and police that were generally in the area, um, and especially at the Katorga sites, uh, at where the, the mines and the, mm-hmm. and the, uh, the smelteries were located, you did have detachments of uh, both uh, indigenous and, and Cossack troops and so on. But I've I found uh, a great deal of data, um, and in fact, in fact, all of Chapter Four, almost much of Chapter Four, mm-hmm. deals with the, the uh, really interesting material I found in the Irkutsk archive about the great number of people who were fleeing from locations all throughout Siberia and so mm-hmm. on. And there just wasn't simply the manpower mm-hmm. necessary to keep these people in place. Mm-hmm. So you had escape rates that were um, probably on the order of about 25 to, to 50 percent of any given factory's uh, workforce mm-hmm. per year. And so it necessitated having to con- constantly replenish right. these workforces with further and further groups of exiles because there was almost no way to keep them where they were. Mm-hmm. Are there a lot of goats? I was going to say about these documents is, you know, you're in the age, of course, before photographs, so right. you've got all these archival documents that are essentially, uh, you know, most wanted posters. Yeah, stuff. right. They're, they're listing all the physical details, yeah. uh, characteristics by which you can identify these, these escapees. Uh-huh. And so you've got people, and you know that these people have been uh, previously sentenced to Katorga because they are described as having their noses ripped off. 
right. or being branded mm-hmm. or having lash scars all over them and mm-hmm. so on. And, and so this is a clear indication that these people have been scourged before they were exiled. Mm-hmm. But it's oftentimes hard to tell as well from the archives, uh, archival documents if the escapees described are exiles themselves or just, for example, soldiers mm-hmm. who are fleeing their impressment or, mm-hmm. uh, or you know, various settlers or so on who are fleeing the authorities or something. But mm-hmm. there was a great deal of flight throughout Siberia. It was a, uh, it was a real wild east in many ways, mm-hmm. and there was a great deal of demographic fluidity in the, in the, in the area for mm-hmm. the whole period mm-hmm. of those. Yeah, I imagine. So how did the government uh, in Moscow or Petersburg attempt uh, to uh, control the settlements that they had created? In other words, it seems to me that these places would be quite corrupt. Is that correct? Uh, they were corrupt. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. And that's another thing that I look at in the in the book is um, the venality of, of the uh, of the Siberian um, Siberian bureaucracy and uh-huh. so on. One one of the things that's important to remember is, you know, Russia even to the present, of course, is 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 a hard place to govern just simply because it's so darn big. Yeah. And it would oftentimes take sometimes well, it would oftentimes take like two years for an instruction issued <laughs> by the sovereign in yeah. Moscow uh-huh. to reach uh, reach the governor of Irkutsk or yeah, something. Yeah. Right. And and so and then by the time it arrived, of course, the governor in Irkutsk uh, would say, "Well, this situation to which it, it refers doesn't apply anymore," or just pretend that he never received the instruction. Right. And he could basically snub his nose at at Moscow or Petersburg and say, "Well, what are you going to do about it? You can't come and get me." Right. Exactly. So what you had was um, very soon developing within Siberia. Um, these regional satrapies, yeah. and these are terms that were used by contemporaries to refer to the various governors in their different locales and so on. Mm-hmm, yeah. And they themselves, the various governors, would do interesting things. For example, uh, you have a number of accounts where they would would impress hapless uh, hapless exiles into to forming their own sort of hussar regiment and mm-hmm. lead them into its wars against fellow governors <laughs> and that. Uh-huh. Um, and then you had this other character, uh, Ivan Zheglov, I think his, his name was, if I remember right, and he was a uh, servitor uh, in the late 17th century in Yakutia, way up near Yakutsk. And even though this guy worked for the government, supposedly, his uh, main bag was to go around and take people hostage in the villages and and use their hot you know, take them hostage to force them to buy the beer, uh-huh. <laughs> which incidentally is stolen in any case from Ivan Pivovarov, that yeah. is to say Ivan of the Brewers, right. um, who had made the beer in the first place, and right. and Zheglov would run this racket, this extortion hostage taking racket for years. Yeah, uh, he was never brought to justice. Wow. And then the interesting thing as well is that he passed on the practices to his son, who continued the family tradition. Mm, so that's ex- that's so yeah. the whole the whole history of uh, of um, you know of, of dubious uh, governing practices 
vis-a-vis the inhabitants of Siberia uh, is, is, is very old. It dates from the very beginning, yeah. and it continued throughout the entire period uh, up until you know, 1917, mm-hmm. at least. Mm-hmm. I see. So let me ask this. Uh, Catherine the Great, whom all of our listeners will know, you know, she was a German lady, and she was quite enlightened. Uh, you know, she corresponded with all the uh, philosophers and so on and so forth. Did, did, was there ever any attempt in her reign or thereafter to reform any of these people, or was the entire uh, object a kind of cynical attempt to extract various sorts of valuable things from Siberia and have them flow back to Moscow? Well, you know, Catherine is this really interesting interesting figure because we all know that, it, like you say, she was influenced by the philosophes, she was influenced by Beccaria and, uh, and Montesquieu and other uh, people who had wrote, written on uh, penal reform and yeah. so on. And, and during her reign, she does uh, institute legislation that is meant to ameliorate the lot for exiles. For example, um, she makes uh, she issues an order that those who fell sick on the march to Siberia would be uh, repaired to a hospital, would be given medical attention. Um, she uh, also uh, supported uh, a clarification of sentences and the issuing of paperwork that would supposedly make sure that there were no confusions that would result in, for example, someone who had been sentenced to administrative exile ending up in a Katorga mm-hmm. site and vice versa. Mm-hmm. Um, she also uh, she uh, ordered that... Um, that uh, the flogging with the knout, which was a, a terrible instrument that, mm-hmm. that oftentimes resulted in death for the for the condemned person, would be abolished, and um, people would now merely be branded uh, on the face. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, too, I think she abolished the slitting of nostrils, which is an, another kind of horrible form of scourging mm-hmm. to, to mark mm-hmm. prisoners and so on. Mm-hmm. But the thing that I point out in, in the book as well is that Catherine was very good at sometimes issuing these pronunciamentos that had uh, humanitarian gloss to them, but she was much, much worse at seeing them through mm-hmm. or providing the funding for these things. Mm-hmm. And so the problem was is that whereas a lot of these things sounded good on paper, they were very rarely actually put into practice. Mm-hmm. And again, here comes in the issue of geography. Is, mm-hmm. you know, how do you really keep control over a bunch of illiterate, uh, brutal guards out in, in central eastern Siberia mm-hmm. who don't give a damn what they say in Petersburg. Right. No. And they don't have to because there's no way they can be brought you know, to responsibility. Mm-hmm. Um, there is another thing, too, that happens very interestingly, is during the, the Pugachev uprising in 1774, uh, when this peasant led a bunch of Cossacks to you know, try to overthrow the, overthrow the monarchy and so on, um, there had been a number of people that were exiled to Siberia, and the problem was is that a number of these exiles were actually uh, joining Pugachev's army and mm-hmm. marching on Kazan and other places. Mm-hmm. And it was at this point that um, that Catherine actually issued an ukaz that abolished exile. Mm-hmm. Now, principally, this was for the reasons that I just explained. But at the same time, she also began to develop the notion of, of creating a series of prisons that would be loosely modeled on the prisons that were then beginning to appear in, uh, in Europe and in the United States for reforming people. Mm-hmm. And uh, this suggests uh, 
a possibility for a much different direction in, in Russia's penal history mm-hmm. um, from that point onward. However, like with these other things, she failed to provide the funding for it. So as far as I could tell, <laughs> uh, none of these prisons came, actually came into existence, with the possible exception of one. And even for that, I, I didn't find much evidence. Uh-huh. So she, she was a person of kind of high ideals, but at the end of the day, I came away with a rather jaundiced picture yeah. of Catherine the Great, one that stands at odds, for example, with the picture that uh, her biographer, uh, Isabel de Madariaga, uh, paints of her as a very kind of humanitarian uh, ruler. I, I, I found quite quite a different picture that come out of, of her with regard especially to the treatment of exiles. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, Russia is a great place for destroying people's ideals. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, it's, it kind of makes you a little bit uh, yeah. cynical. I yeah, no, well, they, you know, I mean, a lot of ideals have entered, and I don't believe any of them have come out unscathed. Um, let yeah, me ask this. Yeah. What, why, uh, why do you end the book in 1822? Well, 1822 um, is a very important turning point. Um, after you have a series of very corrupt uh, governors in eastern Siberia, and this results in problems that are so profound, not only with regard to the treatment of exiles, but mostly in terms of the governance of, of much of Siberia, that Petersburg and Alexander uh, I finally realized that something needs to be done systematically to deal with this problem. And in other words, it's not simply a matter of appointing a new governor, mm-hmm. but it's a matter of re configuring the governance of Siberia. Mm-hmm. And so he picks his, um, his, uh, his favorite counselor, um, um, Mikhail uh, Speransky, who, uh, of course, was very significant in the establishment of ministerial government beginning in 1802, mm-hmm. had helped establish the Ministry of, an Internal, of Internal Affairs, had been working for a while on a, on a kind of aborted con, uh, uh, constitution for Siberia, uh, for Russia, mm-hmm. and um, had, however, fallen into trouble because of his Francophilism during the war with France. He had, was now given, in a sense, a chance to, to return to favor by being ordered, you, you might say, to serve as Eastern Siberia's governor. Mm-hmm. He goes out with plenipotentiary powers in 1819 to Irkutsk, and he sees all the corruption there. He gets rid of hundreds of officials, manages to get some of them taken to, into court, and has others arrested, though not much happens with regard to justice in these things. But he sees that there, that Siberia is a unique place mm-hmm. within the empire, mm-hmm. and that therefore it needs to have a, a unique set of regulations. And so this leads in 1822 to the formation of the 1822 Siberian reforms that he concocts along with the so-called Siberian Committee. And it, I end it here because to me it represents a trans or a kind of a uh, well, yes, a transition into the bureaucratization of the mm-hmm. um, of the of the uh, Tsarist state that that really incorporates the ideals of the police state that had come to fruition earlier in places like Prussia, Mm -hmm. um, where there was a real effort here, and this is embodied in the regulations that I look at in some length in this final chapter, um, to socially engineer 
these exiles to become useful members of society. Mm, that's interesting. And Peronsky was very influenced by German philosophy, and he sincerely believed that the state could use its powers to re-educate and make people into not necessarily good people, because in a sense this is now going beyond good and evil, uh -huh. but to make them useful people, uh -huh. to make them purposeful for the power for the for the purposes of the state. Uh -huh. And what I see in this document is that even with the best intentions, you might say, you have the bases here for the enormous social engineering experiments yeah. of the 20th century. Yeah, and it's and it's it's very insidious. It's very scary because, mm -hmm. of course. You can see that the road to hell was paved with good intentions. <laughs> yeah, yeah. um, I, I think Speransky, you know, in his heart, felt that he was a good man and that he felt he was doing something that was good for the state. And yeah. of course, in the early 19th century, the state was seen as something that was unapologetically good. It was, there yeah. was no problem. But it shows that in the very conceptualization of this uh, entity there are going to be some serious problems for the human rights of individuals and society yeah. as a whole. Yeah, no, I see. That's interesting that, that, that it um, sort of that it, that it presages or, or kind of foreshadows what happens later in the 20th century. It really century. does. Yeah, and, and, and remarkable. It, I mean, it's almost, you know, it's almost like you're writing a script or something. Of course, with the benefit of hindsight, historians can write anything yeah, they want, right. but it, it, it does eerily prefigure um, the experiments after 1917 yeah. in Russia. That's very interesting. Well, Andrew, I want to say uh, thank you very much. We've taken up a, a heck of a lot of your time, and we really appreciate it. Let me um, close the interview by asking you what has become our traditional question, and that is, um, what is your next project, or what are you working on now? Well, I've got, I've got two things. I'm trying to uh, finish and putting through what I hope is its final draft, a translation of uh, the reporter Vlas Dorashevich's memoirs or reportages, uh, reportorial reports uh, from his visit to the Sakhalin penal colony in mm -hmm. 1897, mm -hmm. and these various uh, reports that that he sent back to the newspaper uh, Odesky Listok um, were compiled in book form and published in 1903, mm -hmm. and um, it's never been translated into mm -hmm. English. Mm -hmm. And so I'm finishing that, and that's due to come out uh, from Anthem Press in 2010. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing I'm working on is part two of this trilogy that I mentioned. That's great. And this will cover uh, the period of Siberian exile from 1823 to 1861. And 1861 is significant, of course, because that marks the beginning of yeah. the Great Reform. Yeah, I, I'm so I'm so envious of this long-term project because. I, I always just am terrified when I finish something because I have absolutely no idea what I'm going to do. And so I spend a year, oh, or I don't yeah, know how long, yeah. like, I have no idea whether I'm worth anything or I'm a well, fraud. I feel or... like I'm, I'm bound to this project <laughs> that I, I mean, I, I enjoy what I do, but at the same time, I, I want to finish it because there are a lot of other things I want to do. Yeah, but I well, do think it's very important. Well, I, I really wish you luck with that, and I, and I want to thank you again for writing a terrific book, Exile to Siberia. 1590 to uh, 1822. And, uh, Andrew, thanks very much for being on the show. Well, thank you again, Marshall. I appreciate sure, it. Sure, it's my pleasure. Bye-bye. You've been listening to an interview with Andrew Gentes about his new book, Exile to Siberia, 1590 to 1822. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. Hope you have a great week.